This is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Billy Bailey, the founder and portfolio manager at Saltstone Capital Management. Billy spent years working for the late T. Boone Pickens, um, and this was a very special show because what is happening in the oil sector has been fascinating. We've seen the futures contracts uh, a few days ago in May go negative to about $37 a barrel. That has then subsequently shifted, and now it is positive in June, has flipped to negative. There has been a massive issue as it relates to the price of oil. We've gone down from the 50s all the way down uh, to where we are today, which is a fairly significant drop uh, that is having a cascading effect. We talked about the global macro. We talked about historical context, the issues between the Saudis and the Russians and how this is all kind of interplayed into this. We talked about the storage issues and the demand side issues. And we talked about how this is all playing into liquidity for dollars and just uh, an array of things that are specific to the oil complex. Billy is one of the more knowledgeable people I've ever talked to about this space, and I've been obviously around for quite some time. And so you're going to find out a lot about what's happening in oil. It's going to give you some color. Remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice, and please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear a great conversation with Billy Bailey, founder and portfolio manager at Saltstone Capital Management. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer, and I am really excited about this one. Thanks to my friend Mark Yusko for the amazing introduction to Billy Bailey, founder and portfolio manager at Saltstone Capital Management. Billy, how are you? Doing great. How about yourself, David? Doing great. Billy spent over six years analyzing energy companies and commodities for the late and legendary T-Bone Pickens Investment Management from manager BP Capital. Um, and prior to founding Saltstone, he served as portfolio manager and senior research analyst for the private hedge fund and the BP Capital Fund advisor family of mutual funds. Anyone who has had the pleasure of working with a legend like T. Boone Pickens is someone that I am very excited to hear from. And in this world that we are living with right now, where just a day ago, the May contracts for oil went negative, uh, it is a wild time in the oil industry, and there is a lot to try to dissect. Billy is amazing at that and has been working with the best people in the world. So, Billy, thank you for coming on. And if you could, what we'd like to do at the top of the show is give our guests the opportunity just to give a little bit of a history. Uh, I gave a little bit, obviously, there. But if you can, just expand on your uh, previous experience with T. Boone Pickens and uh, some of the work you've done prior. Sure. And, and David, thank you. You know, we know that, you know, right now it's, it's easy to be fixated on the business side of things when, you know, the economy is in, in shambles currently. People have lost, you know, upwards of 26 million jobs domestically. Uh, you have companies, small business owners that are struggling to figure out how they're going to be able to pay their next check. And so we know that there's real life consequences to what's occurring today. And, you know, I know that, you know, people in, in your state and people that you're directly related to are, are feeling this. Um, I've got friends and family members that are feeling the pains of coronavirus as well. 
And so before we get going, I just wanted to say one, thank you for the opportunity. And two, I just wanted to say that it's not lost on us how um, catastrophic this has been. And we just want everybody to know that, you know, we're, we're thinking about them and grateful to be able to, uh, to visit with you today. Good man. Thank you for that. Of course. So the fun aspect and maybe just diving into, you know, pun intended, the energy side of things is that, um, you know, my time working for Boone Pickens was, was phenomenal. He's an incredible um, legendary person, somebody that I'm very grateful to be able to call a mentor, someone that um, we really had a, a great relationship. And one that I tell many that was more like a father son type of a relationship, even though he was uh, three times older than I was when he passed away last year on September, September 11th. Um, and, you know, he was a gentleman that really instilled an incredible work ethic in all the people that he surrounded himself. He was a change agent. He was a person that liked to um, bring people that were younger into the fold because he liked the energy, he liked the enthusiasm, and he liked the new ideas. Um, so I started working for him November of 2009 as an intern. He had told me no about 10 times. I got the internship through persistence, <laughs> and I was not going to take no for an answer. I ultimately became one of five on the investment committee after earning an internship and then working as an intern for six months. I received a full-time offer. It was an incredible period of time because as you and I can recall, we were coming out of the depths of the great recession. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was, it was a time that, you know, different circumstances, but not too dissimilar from what we're experiencing today. And so anybody that happens to be listening to this podcast, what I'll say, if you're an undergraduate, there is hope out there and the hope comes in the form of persistence. So I would encourage anybody that is uh, potentially coming out of undergrad or coming out of, of, of graduate school to know that, you know, if you work your tail off and you give it your all, uh, there's incredible jobs and incredible people to surround yourself with. So I started, um, you know, working one of five in the investment committee. I was an analyst, as rightfully so, just trying to absorb as much knowledge as possible. And that was in a, a place that it was an incredible um, opportunity to learn every single aspect of the entire value chain of energy. We managed at that time, you know, or in future years, we ultimately ended up managing 150,000 net mineral acres. We had operated positions. We, of course, had his legacy product, which was the founding and the foundation of BP Capital, which was the commodity fund. We had equity funds. Um, we really had a unique structure that was advantageous for a person like myself that was willing to dive in and to absorb as much possible on the energy side. I mean, in fact, there were even a period of time where I got to be a landman as well. So, I mean, my experiences um, span the entire energy um, chain, which I think is unique, and it provides us a different lens with Saltstone Capital Management. And what we do on a daily basis is focused on the bottoms-up fundamentals. Mm -hmm. I spent about 80% of my time at BP Capital focused on the, the specific public equities that we would ultimately um, potentially be investing in. It happened to be very timely from the perspective that at that point, coming in 2009, was really kind of the beginning um, emphasis and, and capital that was being deployed into developing these shale resources, which ultimately led towards uh, the doubling in, in oil supply, which mm -hmm. was huge from the standpoint of being able to model the top down, right? You need to know what the incremental amounts of year-over-year -year growth was going to be coming from. And we felt like we had an advantage because we were meeting with all the C-level executives. We were studying the rocks and we had a deep understanding of what those assets could potentially and ultimately do. And that's where I spent the majority of my time. So going forward and looking at today and understanding Saltstone Capital Management and what we do, we're focused solely on the public equities. 
Got and it. we do as investors is we scrub these companies to the nth degree. But at the same time, everybody loves to just talk about the top down. And given my prior experiences and having worked for one of the last remaining commodity um, stewards and somebody that, that managed from 1997 and beyond, and he would even tell you that when the crude futures market opened in 1983, he loved to talk about at Mesa Petroleum that he had positive gains every single year and actually covered Mesa's SG&A from, from 83 to 93 over a decade period from his futures trading. Wow. So this is in Boone's DNA. And it was something that was ultimately um, intertwined amongst, amongst all of our DNAs from the standpoint of studying the physical supply and demand and what oil looks like. So I think that's what provides a, a unique lens and excited for this conversation, David. Absolutely. So let's dig into that. And so we are in very unprecedented times, as I said a few days ago, actually just about 48 hours ago. Um, we had, I think, probably one of the first times where the price of crude on their futures contracts went negative. I think it was about negative $38 a barrel, something of that nature. So I want to talk a little bit before we get too far into that. I want to see how we got here. And so obviously, as you alluded to, we are dealing with a global pandemic, and it is something that is very close to on our hearts and our minds and something that is affecting our families and our friends. But at the same time, it's also affecting our economy. So how did we get to this point? Where did we get to the point where oil, I think WTI was trading around $50, $55 a barrel pretty pretty well for a period of time. It seemed to have fair amount of stability. You know, Obviously, there have been periods over the last few years where there has been more volatility, and we have touched about $25 a barrel you know, over the last few years. But we were in a period where it was fairly calm, and then all of a sudden, things started getting real bad. Um, and so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the demand side. Let's talk about the virus, what the effects are. And let's also talk about Russia and Saudi. You know, what are they doing and how did they affect this whole plot? Sure. And uh, there's a lot, lot to unpack in that, in that question. And, and one of the things to, to have a better understanding of where we could potentially be going is obviously having a depth of understanding of where we've been. And that's what, you know, when you're talking top down, you know, this is where, you know, the fun geopolitical conversations are, are hashed. And I think it's important just to give um, anybody that's listening to this a, a context for where we've been and, and where um, we were prior to the March 6th decision, which ultimately led toward um, OPEC deciding uh, not to extend or cut production and essentially unravel what they had been uh, agreed upon over the last four years that, that kind of started in February of 2016. So, to give the global picture, um, it's pretty simplistic from this standpoint, and it's nice because it's round numbers. Before coronavirus, we had about 100 million barrels a day of demand, and we had 100 million barrels a day of supply. And when you think about the breakout of the supply, uh, think about OPEC as about 30% of that, so about 30 million barrels a day of supply from OPEC. And then think about Russia's, call it round numbers, 10 million barrels a day, so you're talking about 40 million barrels a day. Then the United States of America, which obviously has been through this, it's not lost on anybody, and it's been nice political taglines, this American ingenuity, this American re energy renaissance, um, this massive amount of shale growth that is um, that has really reversed a trend of U.S. supply declines that many incredibly wise uh, people thought they would never see. And we bottomed out, call it at 5 million barrels a day of U.S. production. And as of the end of last year, we were at 13 million barrels a day of production. So what I've just described between OPEC, Russia, and the United States of America 
is greater than 50% of global supply. And those are really the three heavyweights that have been duking this out over the last four years. So when you rewind a little bit further and you look at what was the peak of, of energy equities, which was in June of 2014, um, that was a period in time when you started to see some of the slips in the crack. Oil was at about 100 a barrel. It traded off, uh, call it $25, $30 a barrel. And then we got to the epic 2014 OPEC meeting, which I will never forget because the markets were closed. It was Thanksgiving Day, and it was one of the most fascinating um, things that will forever be ingrained in my mind uh, from an investing perspective. OPEC decided not to cut production. And there was a seasoned uh, Saudi energy minister by the name of Ali Al-Naimi, who essentially had lived through the 80s, and he had said, that, look, if we are going to cut production, then that void, no different than the 80s when we did the same, it's just going to be filled by other nations or other producers or other companies in the, in the, in the, in the case that it was the United States. So why are we going to cut our production so somebody else can fill that void to the benefit of those other producers. So the market share battle ensued in 2014. That persisted until 2016. What transitioned in 2016 was the form of Mohammed bin Salman, who became deputy crown prince. MBS, as people in the media and everybody has now um, come to know him, he's a a 30-something-year-old that is, in my opinion, probably, I mean, his father is the king, but he is the largest public figure in Saudi Arabia. And so in 2016, I believe that MBS capitulated about six months too soon. You were starting to see what is happening with these energy companies today. That was starting to occur in the early form of 2016. And so in, in February, Jan Feb, he made the decision to kick out Al Naimi, who was a seasoned Saudi oil minister, and put in Khalid Al Fali, who became his guy. And he told Al Fali that, look, you have to orchestrate an agreement and you need to get Russia to the table and do whatever you can to do because Saudi cannot bear the brunt of these cheap prices. So Feb of 2016, as you were alluding to, David, prices got as low on February 11, 2016 of 2605. And at that point in time, it was the point of capitulation. Saudi comes to the table and all of a sudden the rest is history, right? We get a new kind of four-year rejuvenation Um, Oil markets didn't actually come to a physical papered agreement until December. And what transpired, no different than, you know, what you see in the markets today is, you know, it was it was one of those situations where, you know, you trade the headlines and you you sell the news. Oil prices actually doubled from twenty six oh five to to fifty two dollars a barrel over the course of a, of a 10-month period in time. And that was really started, the impetus for that bottoming in prices, February 11th, that I'm describing in 16, was the case that Russia for the first time said that they would be willing to come to the table. And so now, as I was describing earlier, you had, instead of 30 million barrels a day, you had 40 million barrels a day of production that was saying, you know, look, we're actually gonna come, we're gonna form an agreement, we're gonna cut production, we're gonna stabilize prices, and we can no longer bear low prices for a longer period of time. Now, there's another lens to view this too as, through as well, which is one that's more critical for our business as we focused and, and, and we attempt to underwrite security, is the fact that you had a plethora of capital, in our opinion, that was raised in early, late 2014 and early 15, and was deployed, in our opinion, at unfortunately the wrong time. And a lot of that capital... From 2015 until 2020, you're 
you're talking about $800 billion that has been deployed in shale. And the reason why I said at the wrong time is because it's the prices in which there were underwritten for, for that capital that was infused. You also had a lot of people that had remembered 2008 and 2009, mm-hmm. right? In 08, you saw prices that peaked at 147, they went down to 30, and then they quickly rebounded to 100 and they normalized in kind of the 80 to $120 band for, you know, for the better, amount of, better part of call it five or six years. And so you had people that thought you were going to see this massive V bottom in crude, capital was raised, generalists raised, um, distressed energy funds, and you had a ton of money that was deployed in 2015. And unfortunately, that money that was deployed in 15 did not do so well from a return on invested capital standpoint. And so as you, as you look forward and you look into you know, what transpired into this year, and, and I know I'm, you know, jumping forward a few years and we could elaborate a lot further, but I, I know in the sake of time, um, you know, and, and, and viewership is probably going to be interested in what's happening today. You had a situation where, once again, Mohammed bin Salman had a really tough 2018, in, in my opinion. And that 2018 happened, which is not lost on anybody. Um, it happened when, with the murder of, of Jamal Khashoggi. And that was really a point and another inflection point in history where things started to get expedited in this, in this massive vision 2030, you know, that everybody was talking about, right? That his grand plans to, um, to float 5% of, to, to float 5% of Saudi Aramco to raise $100 billion for the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And that $100 billion was going to go to diversify the kingdom away from fossil fuels. So instead of being patient in that, in that raise, um, Jamal Khashoggi was was murdered, and now all of a sudden they decided to expedite the process of their Ramco IPO offering. And you fast forward to 2019, international parties were not as interested in this. Things were starting to become unraveled, and then Saudi Arabia decided to IPO it. Um, they ended up only IPOing, call it a percent. They wanted it to target five, and essentially the kingdom was the one that took down the entire book. Uh, China was in there as well. But the thing that the process did not go as well as anticipated. And we mm-hmm. actually sent a letter out to our investors um, a couple of weeks before we actually disseminated it publicly as well. And we started to see and to sense the sentiment of the different countries in November of 2019 starting to dissipate a little bit. And you could start to see some of the internal fashions. You no longer had Al Falib, Saudi Arabia. You now had Mohammed bin Salman, who had displaced that energy minister because Al-Fali was starting to disagree with, with some of the IPO aspects of Aramco. So he once again kicked him out and he put in his half-brother, who's known as ABS, Abdulaziz bin Salman. And his half-brother, and who's the full, is, a, is a son of the king, is now the Saudi energy minister and he's controlling the reins. So now you had a relationship between Russia's energy minister, who had been there since 2016, and this new Saudi minister, that they didn't have a prior relationship, right? So you're rekindling new relationships and you can start to see some of the cracks in the system that were bearing fruit in the late 2019 time period. They did get an agreement, but then you fast forward into 2020 and what happened? It was very fascinating um, to watch this transpire because in early March, what started to occur as the coronavirus started to be known, you saw, you know, obviously the implications in China, you started to see some of these countries locking down, you started to see it um, filter into to other places of the globe, and it was expanding beyond just China alone. And you had, in my opinion, a very prudent and wise choice by Russia to tell Saudi on March the 5th and 4th, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, leading up to their meeting on the 6th, 
that, you know, we actually think it is better to wait to understand the full demand ramifications before we shoot our last bullet. Saudi was pitching to Russia that they wanted to cut an incremental one and a half million barrels a day. Mm -hmm. And Russia was saying, let's wait, let's be patient. And David, I think this is a really wise choice by them. And it proved to be correct because at that point in time, what people need to remember is people were only talking about a short-term blip of of demand destruction of 5 million barrels a day. Well, we know now in April that it's closer to 6X that. It's closer to 30 million barrels a day of demand destruction, which is catastrophic for the oil industry, which ultimately gets us into why you have seen, and I'll get to that, negative 37 on the day before the May contract closed on, on spot TI. And so March 6th comes around. Saudi comes out to the market the day before and says, we've got a deal. We've got a million and a half barrel a day cut. This is going to happen. This is going to transpire. And you start to see some inklings out of Russia, a little bit PO'd that Saudi is actually breaking this information before a true deal has occurred. And so what happens on March the 6th, you had consternation, you had Russia here, you had Saudi there. And basically, according to our sources, um, MBS said, look, if Russia's not coming in, then we're not doing a deal and there's going to be no cut. Hmm. So they exited with not only um, which Russia had said they would be willing to extend those cuts through 2Q, they exited with not only not having an extension nor a deeper cut, they exited with nothing. And so now you've got Russia that was upset, you have Saudi that was upset, and Russia walks out of the room. And Alexander Novak, the Russian energy minister, said, look, now I'm doing not have a deal, but come April 1, it's full-fledged, supply whatever you want to supply to all OPEC countries plus Russia. So ramp it up. And this is what the Russian um, NOCs have been talking about. Rosneft has been very vocal about wanting to do this. Mm-hmm. And so now you had essentially a market that was just in this huge oversupply situation just overnight. And it really brought flashbacks back to that Thanksgiving Day meeting in 2014 where agreement doesn't happen. And all of a sudden, you've got a plet- an abundance of supply that the market's going to have to meet. And then you commingle that with uh, the demand destruction that's occurring. So I know I've given you a lot. Um, and a lot to chew me up. April, but there's, there was a lot of detail to be had, and hopefully that helps from a historical perspective. It's amazing. I obviously this is not my portfolio, so I didn't know of the. I would actually call it almost like an equivalent to a cold war that is affected between Saudi and Russia. Now it's it's quite interesting. There's a detente and a cold war, and it's interesting. It's almost like having Reagan and Gorbachev, and you know Reagan saying, you know, take down this wall. It's I didn't know that there was all these layers involved, and it's it's very interesting the game theoretics that uh, you're peeling through here. So we want to yeah. Sorry, I don't want to cut you off, but and now the fun part is you insert the United States of America and President Trump. And mm. he had been vocal that he look, he he lived through the 70s and 80s. He he's a low he wants cheap gasoline. He he remembers, you know, visualizing and actually probably going to the gasoline stations and not being able to fill up the tank because of what the Middle Eastern countries had done to America at that point in time. So he's been a America first, he's been a pro-energy energy independence type of, we can debate those. I'm just, I'm not talking about my opinions. I'm talking about the merits of what is actually occurring in the market. Mm-hmm. That's the philosophy in which he's been working. And so now you've got a situation that has transpired post March 6th, where he actually had to change his tact. And now he had to insert himself into the equation and he had to be the middleman between exactly what you're describing, which is very similar to some of the same things that uh, Ronald Reagan had to do as well, which is which is fascinating, just looking at the different parallels that occurs from a political standpoint. Absolutely. 
And so let's jump in. So we talked about, you know, obviously the May contracts, which all of a sudden now have flipped. And I've heard, I've seen the data. It seems that May has now reflected, you know, a positive. And now June has gone negative. And uh, maybe you can explain that, how that happened. But I also want to talk about, you know, we talked about demand. Obviously, you know, the United States, you know, 90 some odd percent of us have been in quarantine lockdown. The demand side has shriveled up and we don't have a vaccine. You know, the testing has been slow. Um, I wish that obviously we had, you know, to scale testing right now. And obviously I know that's a priority for the administration and for the governors of the states out there that are affected like New York. And so we have issues there getting the demand side back and flourishing, um, which obviously is not a oil issue. It is more of a biotech issue and a administrative issue issue. But, you know, aside from the demand side, I've seen evidence, I've seen reporting that there are tankers, you know, on the coast of California. I'm sure there are other tankers out there that are filled to the brim with oil and they have no place to go. So there is a storage issue that I've been hearing about. So I'd like you to opine about that. And is that just an isolated problem here in the United States or is it global? And you mentioned cuts and you mentioned OPEC um, is the only lever left to kind of alleviate these issues is a cut and how substantial. So let's talk about the storage issue. Let's talk about the flipping that happened between May and June of those contracts and what happened there. And let's talk about, you know, this issue of can OPEC kind of come to the rescue, if you will, and can the White House also broker a deal where we get that supply cut, where it's meaningful, where we can resurrect this? Totally. Okay. So another is a all phenomenal questions and they all, I wish we were, uh, I wish this was not just audio because I got a huge smile on my face because this is what gets you jazzed up to be able to talk about. So a couple things, I, I'm going to attack the supply side really quick because we left it at kind of that March 6th timeframe. Things are really bad, tumultuous in the market, coronavirus amps up, things continue to get worse. You start to see demand destruction conversations globally. Remember, we talked about initially that you have 100 million barrels a day of demand, 100 million barrels a day of supply. So now you're talking about supply has increased because, right, they said that they're no longer going to be taking those barrels off the market. And then from that point in time until where you are kind of middle of March, early April, now demand has gotten worse as well. So you've got both sides of the equation that are being impacted by two unparalleled black swan events that are attacking the energy markets that I think are, are going to have uh, broader ramifications as we fast forward into through the course of 2020 and into 2021. So you have President Trump that inserts himself and he's kind of changes his course. You had so many different aspects that were floated, right? You had the idea of Gulf of Mexico production being shut in in exchange for that, seeing a, a relief on um, a relief on taxes and extension and leases. Um, a relief on royalty rates, just all these different ideas, you know, you, you know, fill the SBR to the tippy tops was another quote that was one of the things that President Trump had talked about. He had only 80 million, 77 million barrels that could t- potentially be increased from the SBR. That, as we know, with the um, initial, you know, call it $2 trillion, uh, stimulus package that was floated through by Congress, that actually did not pass. So you still have those type of things that are being looked at and examined. You had the idea of import tariffs. You had the idea of the Texas Railroad Commission talking about coordinated cuts amongst producers. You know, that's one thing that uh, that Texas has. Um, Oklahoma has this as well, but but is very unique to the other states 
in the United States of America as we actually have as a, as a state, which I, my hometown is Dallas, Texas, uh, born and raised here. Um, and so as a Texan, it's unique that we have the ability for what's known as pro-rationing. We haven't done this in 50 years. It's been almost five decades. since 1973. But essentially, you have the ability as a, a governing body and the three railroad commissioners to actually vote to uh, decrease the amount of production uh, through uh, an allowable system to where you could actually curtail, which is an important anecdote because Texas uh, makes up, caught 40% of United States production. So U.S. is at 13 million barrels a day. Texas is at 5.2 million barrels a day. So now you've got all of these different ideas that are being tossed around. So you fast forward to an emergency OPEC meeting. So only one month after OPEC decided not to cut, you get all the parties back into the table. And they come up with this coordinated agreement and they decide to cut this massive headline figure, right? 20 million barrels, 15 to 20 million barrels a day. The problem is from a fundamental investor and from somebody that studies the supply and demand dynamics of what's occurring is what typically happens with these is the headline figure, as you and I both know, it's just like a, a, an 8K from a company, right? It's a lot better than it probably is once you dive into the weeds. Well, that was true with this too. And it looked like from their agreement that not only were they going to wait to May 1st, which meant that there were still going to be 65 million barrels that were produced beyond what um, they had talked about before, which is a massive amount when you're talking about storage, et cetera. But you also had um, the understanding that the cuts were really only going to be more like four and a half to five million barrels a day. So you had commodity prices that reacted based upon the, the, the idea and the headlines. And commodity actually got up to spot prices, got up to 29 a barrel. And then they quickly retraced that. And so what happened is you have a market that worked incredibly efficiently in that May contract, in my opinion, and you go into the close and you were actually, and I'm, I'm, I'm missing, I would love to dive even deeper, but for the sake of time, you know, I'm just fast forwarding to that May contract because I know it's a big point of your question as to why we had negative prices. So think about it this way, David, you had 100,000 contracts going into that close. And so 100,000 contracts represents, from a, from a paper perspective, represents 100 million barrels of actual, um, of oil, of physical oil that you might have to take. And so when you're coming into that close of May, you, you globally just have 70 million barrels a day of demand at that point in time. So you had a massive excess of actual paper contracts relative to the amount of demand that you were seeing. And actually that demand figure that would actually be less because you're talking about needing to take physical barrels at the hub, which is Cushing. And so you had this catastrophic, perfect tsunami of events. And then on that day, the CME, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, they come out and said that, hey, we actually are going to change the modeling. This is intraday. And apparently they'd been working on this for several weeks. But we're going to change the modeling like we've seen in other commodities to where you actually can have negative pricing. And that's when the market fell underneath. The prices went to a point the day before close, the day before the May contract closed, the prices went to a level to where, you know, you, you, had, you had an understanding of, look, even if it's zero, there's still cost to storing those barrels. It's got to go to, or there's a cost to cutting off your production supply. So it had to go to a negative price to incentivize those type of things happening. And then fast forward one day to the actual day in which the contract closed and it settled caught at $10 a barrel, which is close to kind of a cash cost type of a level. And so we think that the, that the May contract was actually extremely efficient. Mm. And then you roll into all these different dynamics. I think a lot of people in CNBC and others were focused on the USO, which is a, mm -hmm. a, 
for lack of a better terminology, it's a retail um, ETF that is focused on um, a forward, forward months in the, in the crude curve. That USO was not actually invested at that point in time in the May contract. They had already rolled forward. So you actually had very detailed, analytical, institutional, physical traders that were involved in this. And you're starting to see some of the ramifications of it, right? So you had China that's come out recently, and they've talked about a massive hit to, to their books from, from those contracts. Mm-hmm. You've had interactive brokers that has come out and talked about them actually having to take an $88 million loss because they had some clients that didn't have enough equity to be able to cover those losses. From having uh, from having options in in that contract, so you're starting to see some of these things. We've heard some murmurs that you know potentially it could have been you know a refiner that was on the other side of things that that could have gotten um, you know that that could have you know seen those negative prices, et cetera. We we don't know yet, but something will come out from this. But in my opinion, from a physical supply and demand perspective, prices did what prices need to do, right? And, and they act on the fundamentals. And it was telling you that you just you had too much supply for the amount of demand and you had nowhere to put it. So prices went negative. Supply and demand. It's always coming down to the basics, supply and demand. And so I want to talk a little bit about this. You know, I remember 16, I remember 25 a barrel. And I remember the reports coming out of Houston and some of the other uh, hotspots here in the United States that it had a very detrimental effect. You know, I think of sunk costs, you know, on the Bitcoin side, you know, on the other side of the conversation, which we're not touching today, but we talk about sunk costs. We talk about the mining equipment. We talk about the energy that's needed to mine these Bitcoins. And on the oil side, it's very similar. You have rigs, you have the wells, you have the people that need to actually mine those things. There are sunk costs to this. And you know, I know that there's been modeling anything below $40, give or take. Um, you kind of running into some problems there. And, you know, I remember back, as I said, in, in 16, you hit 25. And I remember that was starting to have a cascading effect in some of those localities and states that have a lot of uh, density there with the workers. And they weren't able to pay their bills because they were getting shut down and the, the wells were getting shut down. Talk to us about the cascading effects now. What's gonna? What do you think is happening out there? What do you think is going to happen? Is there another shoe to drop, and what should we start taking a look at? Totally. And so this is, this gets into more of what what we focused on and kind of the nuances of the companies that we study. You know, I'll reiterate kind of what some of my opening comments were. It, it is it's extremely tough for everybody in the world right now. Uh, this is one of the only times that um, everyone in the world is doing the same thing, which they're in their homes. And, you know, I think it's a unique period. You look at energy, we believe we've been a six-year bear market. And we, th- we think this is a continuation of that, of that bear market. And we think that, unfortunately, what's going to transpire is that in the bottom of uh, 2016, the rig count went to three, oil rigs went to 316. In, in the peak in October of 2014, you were at 1,609 rigs. Today, you're at 435 rigs. We think that the rig count goes to 158. And we think that's a function of, of, of what, from our modeling perspective, of what type of, from an efficiency standpoint, from a rock standpoint, what the annual supply growth that you're going to need to see out of the United States of America once you come out of this. You are seeing, no different than what you were reiterating on supply demand, you're seeing global cuts occur. It's hard to quantify it. It's why a fundamental investor and a, a physical supply demand um, person that's studying the, um, the effects of of what's occurring on the supply side would prefer uh, not 
involuntary or economic cuts. They would prefer that it was something that was mandated by global participants because it's easier, easier to model. Now you're in the window of, of a lot of unknowns, right? And so you're at the behest of just seeing what public companies are displaying from a U.S. perspective of what the declines and, and what their cuts are. And to our and to our opinion right now, what has at least been communicated is about a million barrels a day of, of U.S. supply that's been cut. We think that it's probably closer at this point in time to, you know, 20 to 30 percent, which means that you're talking about, you know, 2.6 to 3.9 million barrels a day that's been cut out of the United States. And remember that the United States represents 13 percent of global supply. And so if you extrapolate that to the rest of the world, which I don't know if that's necessarily a fair thing to do, but if you were to do that, then that would roughly start to put supply and demand in balance, which is what prices are telling you. And prices will do what prices always do. They will make sure that the supply and demand matches. And the problem right now is in the past, um, you know, you, you go to a, a point in which you incentivize incremental demand. Well, the reason why we're in such a troublesome period until economies start to be opened up globally is because there's no incremental demand no matter what the price is. Like even if, the, even if a gallon of gasoline is going to be $1.20 here in, in Dallas, which by the way, I know this is an, a side note, but a lot of people don't recognize that 40% of that dollar and 20 happens to be federal and state taxes, but that's neither here nor there. But anyways, at $1.20 for a gallon of gasoline, um, I, I'm not going to go jump in my car and drive to Oklahoma because I can't. <laughs> and so you have to make this happen on the supply side of the equation, which is why prices are doing what they do. So then you look through the entire, um, you look, look at states like Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, uh, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, Ohio, states that have really thrived. Pennsylvania, Ohio are more natural gas, but those others are more fixated on oil, Colorado included. Um, you look at those states and, and it is going to be an extremely challenging period of time because what, what occurred in 2016 was you still had a lot of unknowns. You still had zones. You still had basins. You still had different aspects and efficiencies that were driven out that created this um, equity investing lens that, that created an exuberance and an excitement to invest in these securities. And so along with that, you saw $800 billion of capital that was put into the system. And now the capital markets are shut with the exception of a select few operators that are being able to do some things, a couple of which happened today, one with Centennial Resource Development, which saw a, an uptearing of, of their bonds where they, they essentially cut the, you know, the notes in half. Mm-hmm. In, in exchange for you know terming them out as well as um, you know as well as a, a little higher uh, payment as well, and so you saw EQT do a deal as well, and so you're in this situation now where we believe that unfortunately it's probably going to continue to get harder, and it'll get harder until the point which transpires of consolidation, and no different than the '70s, '80s, and '90s. These cycles occur where you have a, a, like in the 70s, take this for instance, you had 70 publicly traded companies mm-hmm. and then you rolled into the early 80s and you, you cut that down to 20. Then that ballooned up to like 80 publicly traded companies, you roll into the late 90s and then you entered the early 2000s and the teens. Then you saw the Asian demand boom and you saw a plethora of IPOs to capitalize on the process. So capitalize on the opportunity set of shale, right? And so now you're sitting there with a ton of companies that are not able to appropriately capitalize the resource 
And unfortunately, at this point in the cycle globally, shale is the marginal barrel. And that's what you're seeing, right? Um, you look at full cash costs, obviously, it's going to vary by company. Um, there's a lot of different aspects of, of those costs and a lot of components that and in, in, in very in, in variables that, that transpire in that. The rocks are one of the most important aspects of that. But if you simply look at it, um, you have these companies that are going to uh, are going to be in some serious pain, um, unfortunately, which means that there's going to be further job losses. It's going to be a tough time in Texas because it's you know when you take a a good paying job out of that hand, I mean that trickles down to your diner, that trickles down to the gas station, that trickles down to you know the the you know your your car dealerships and everybody. Mm-hmm. So so we unfortunately foresee it continue to um, to be an incredibly challenging time for the energy sector. And so something new that I'm doing is taking, I fielded a few questions on social media before I had the the chat with Billy and I like this one and we didn't necessarily pin on it, but I think it's a good question to ask. What is the impact on global dollar liquidity with the oil markets in dislocation right now? You know, it's, I'm, I'm glad you, you asked that one. And I'm also glad that I did my homework before you asked that one. And I looked at your Twitter feed because I would have assumed that somebody would have asked some questions. So I had a little a little edge. So whoever asked that question, I appreciate it. But I'm also glad that I looked it up before we got on here. Um, because it's a challenging one. and It's really hard to quantify. And I think the best way that I'd like to answer that is to, to un, unpack um, that $800 billion. I don't want to talk specifically about um, the USD. I want to rather talk about the potential ramifications for the capital that's been invested in the space. And what we believe, unfortunately, is that, for instance, for private equity firms that have you know funds vintage uh, 2015 and beyond, we think that given that 5% of those are marked at less than you know one-time return on 1x return on invested capital, uh, we think that there is massive write downs that are forthcoming for private equity, which also will, will obviously reverberate through the system. We think when you look at the credit side of things, um, not talking about RBLs, just talking about um, you know bonds that have been issued by these companies is to the tune of about four hundred um, billion that's been put into the market. We think that there is an unfortunate circumstance that that um, credit could probably be worth somewhere to the tune of twenty to thirty cents on the dollar. Which means that even though your loan books, if you're in the large bulge brackets, might be less than they were in the '80s and less than they were in the, um, you know, in the financial crisis, this is still going to impact um, these financial participants. And when you take loan books, even if it's six percent of your of your book, and you mark that down substantially, that's a that's a drastic hit for your for your shareholders and for your investors. And you're starting to see some of that come out. And then you kind of look at the ripple effect. Um, as as it goes through to the real estate market here locally in the in the state of Texas, I mean, there's you know I know people like to flash up that there's you know several hundred thousand jobs that are tied to energy, but the problem is it's the derivatives of those jobs um, that are that are born that are essentially subsidized by um, the incredible salary that people get to be paid to to do the hard work that they deserve to be paid for. But unfortunately, there's not going to be that demand on a go forward basis in our humble opinions, which is not an easy thing to say because it's real lives that are at stake. But unfortunately, we think that um, what is transpiring is going to continue to be a slow, hard, and rigorous um, next few years. And it's going to get us to the point to where you get to the other side. And ultimately, the sector will be in a better position to where free cash flow yields will be appealing 
or even a generalist investor that might have said a year ago that they would only be investing in solar, they might actually look at it and say, hmm, there's real cash that's accruing to, to these balance sheets and, and we want to be involved there. So that's kind of what we think from a dollar perspective and more so from an investing perspective, less on the value of the dollar. That is a fascinating and unfortunately, obviously, a very scary kind of look into what we have going into the future. But I will say this again, and as our friend Mark says, you know, basically, um, you know, what doesn't kill us today, you know, makes us stronger. And I think obviously we will come out of this um, and uh, we will learn from this and we will continue to prosper, you know, even though there will be some hard times in the near term future. Billy, what I would like to do is for people that are listening to this who would love to get in touch with you and talk more about what you're doing and your views. We'd love to give you the opportunity for those to find you. And uh, if you'd like to let them know where they can. Sure. I appreciate that, David. And, and before we, we get off, I, I also want to thank you again. And thanks to Mark for the opportunity. I'm, I'm humbled and honored to be on, on your show. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. I have been a more active Twitter participant. I, I came to the conclusion in 2011 with the Arab Spring that I needed to be on Twitter. And then I came to the conclusion after the president of the United States was elected via Twitter, in my humble opinion, that who am I not to be tweeting? And so you can find me at at WRBailey8. That's W-R-B-A-I-L-E-Y and the number eight. Um, via Twitter. And then, you know, I'm also always available and easily accessible and always love to talk about a, a space and a sector and an industry that I'm passionate about and that I love. And you can find me via email at bbailey at saltstonecapital.com. All of that can be found easily online and I'm easily accessible and I'm grateful for you allowing me that opportunity to be able to disseminate my contact information. Billy, this was a pleasure. Thank you for the dive into the markets right now as it relates to oil. Fascinating things that I did not know about, and I'm hoping that others will be able to glean insight into that and get some discovery into what's happening out there and help them in their processes as we are all dealing with a lot of uncertainty. Billy, thank you for coming on. We'll be catching up with you hopefully in a few months, maybe on a brighter side of things when things start to recover and we're actually able to get out of our houses and enjoy Enjoy this beautiful world that we have. Thank you, Billy, for coming on. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, David. Stay healthy and safe. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space in the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.